0: Welcome, everybody. Part two of Masahat Sanhedrin with Hafan Fawr. Let's begin. Okay. All
1: right. So I just want to start uh, today's class. I want to explain what I'm going to be doing. And in order to do that, I'm going to be sharing the screen um, with the source that was not on the resource sheet, but um, it's one paragraph. Um, And here it is. I believe you can see it, correct? Okay, good. Um, so, this is a passage from uh, my father's article regarding how the Gemara was studied in the Sephardic Andalusian tradition. And um, it was studied in three stages. Uh, the first stage was what was called Girsa or Surat Hadishmata. That's what we're going to be doing today. Um, the second stage was uh, Yun, which is not what we're going to be doing yet, although we We'll hopefully get to some even later. And then the final stage is uh, Talmud or Pesakalaha. Let me read to you now the paragraph regarding the first stage. And, and I'm um, putting my arrow over it. I don't know if you can see it, but you probably could. I'm going to make it a little bigger. There you go. Okay. The purpose of this first stage of studying Gemara is to know the shape of the Shemateta. Shemateta in Aramic means the lesson. So as you know, the yeshivot in Badal, um, they have these um, lessons, which were basically summaries of discussions that took place in the yeshiva with respect to specific issues. So the summaries of these lessons are what we have in the Gemara. That's called the shema Teta. So, so each sugya um, is actually a shema Teta. It's a um, it's a lesson. And each lesson was organized in a very specific way. So I'll give you an example. For those of you who may have gone to law school, um, when you study, um, you know, a particular case, so the case has the title, um, and then the case will have, let's say, the name of the court where it went to, the case may have some procedural matters, then they'll actually, they'll, they'll actually have a, um, a discussion of the facts, then they will have analysis of the law. That's a particular way to structure um, the particular case that came before the court. The structuring of the sugyot and the Gemara was actually very different. The structuring of the sugyot and the Gemara um, was, wasn't based on that um, uh, breakdown. But rather, what it was, it was a summary of the entire lesson that was given to the Talmudim. And oftentimes, these summaries, um, they took place, or these lessons rather, they took place over several generations. So what you'll have in the sugya is you'll have a multi-generational approach to a particular problem. You will see how this was uh, done in, um, um, uh, in, in one yeshiva, then maybe you'll see how it was done in the same yeshiva a generation later, right? So when the Gemara was edited, he took the various lessons, and he put them together in an organized fashion, and what we have is the Shemua. Now, when the Gemara was uh, edited by Ravina and Rav they actually gave the sugyot particular structures, okay? Um, and the structures of the sugyot, or knowing the structure of the sugyot, is the first step in studying the sugyana. Now, now, why should that be? So um, when, when, when you're trying to organize information in your mind and you don't really know where you're going and what the next step is and what the goal is, it becomes a little confusing and muddled, Right? So what, what the editors of the Gemara did is they organized the in very, very particular fashion. So it would be easy to remember them by heart and go over it in your mind as, um, as you review it. So now when you have the structure, it's really easy. Well, it, I don't want to say it's really easy, but, but it's easier to understand it by heart and to follow, the, um, to follow it mentally. In addition, as a student studying the suyat, beforehand, I tell you, here's the map. Here's what we're going to be doing. You know. Here's the various parts. And then we go over those various parts, then it's, it's much easier for you to organize information in your mind and to follow the discussion in a meaningful fashion. So um, I'm now going to unshare my, my screen. Um, stop share. And voila, I'm going to pin it myself so you can see me more clearly. There. OK. Um, so let's, let's now go forward. And I'm going to, uh, uh, do you all have the map of the Sugya that I prepared? Or, yeah, is it good? Is there there a need for it to be shared on the chat? Or I can assume that everybody has it. Uh, What do you think, Sina?
0: I can share it on the chat while you're speaking. I can share a link to it if you want. Or you can share the screen, Whatever's easier for you.
1: Uh, So you can share a link. uh, I share a link to
0: it on the chat. I think Michael's just posted it. There we go. Thank you, Michael.
1: Okay, great. All right. So please open up that uh, map because this is what we're going to be doing today. I'm going to be taking you through the sujya, and I'm going to be taking to you through the sunatadishmatetah level. And this will give you a this will give you all a bird's eye view of the sujya. Okay. So I'm going to give you a moment to open it up while I have another sip of my espresso, which was made special for this class. Okay. All right. All right, so here it is. So uh, this sugya deals with a particular linguistic problem. The linguistic problem is the Mishnah, the first sentence of the Mishnah. We discussed that last week. And it's summarized um, in the first few words of the sugyah. So the first few words of the sugyah is basically telling you, here's what we're going to be dealing with in this sugyah. So you see where um, I say gemara, right? And then I have that, that in a gray field, right? The words are in a gray field. So just so you know, and so when you follow this map, this is going to make your life easier. You'll notice that some of the letters have a colorful background to them. And then some of the letters don't have a colorful background to them, right? There's no background. The letters with the background are the words of the gemara, right? So you'll see the words of the gemara in the background shaded field. Right? And you'll know that's the actual Gemara. And the rest of the stuff is stuff that I'm writing about the words of the Gemara. So I just wanted to make this easy. So you see there's a great background to the first few words. That was the problem. That was a problem under consideration. Namely, you will recall that the Mishnah starts and there's a certain redundancy. In adding the words, We already said, That includes So that's a problem. That's a problem that sugya is going to deal with. And I want to show you the map. I want to first give you a nice overview of the sugya, Okay? Um, in a very general fashion. So you see this part one, right? Which is in this big black bold letters. There's part two. If you go down, you scroll down to, I think, page two. There's part two, and there's part three. That's the suya. This is called the Suya meshuleshet. It's called the Suya meshuleshet because there's three parts to the suya. And you'll see that each one of the three parts of the suya in turn has three subparts. Um, and uh, in, in, in fact, the first subpart of the first part of the suya has three sub-subparts, okay? And you're gonna see it all, you know, nice colorful um, uh, letters, okay? So you'll see. Now what I did is, um, again, I want to teach you how to use this map so that you can review it and understand this. Yeah, so let's look now, part one, Rabbi Abhu's approach to the textual problem. Okay, that's in, in the page, first page. So this part one is going to deal with Rabbi Abhu's approach to the, to, to, to the problem raised. And as I said, Rabbi Abhu was in Eres Israel in Syria. He took a particular approach. Let's go now to part two. Part two is it's going to look at the same problem, exact same issue, exact same question, but instead of looking at it from the perspective of Rabbi Abhu, we're going to look at it from the perspective of Rabbah. Rabbah was the Rosh Hashiva, uh, Rabbi Abhu was the Rosh Hashiva in Caesarea, as I mentioned last week. He was a Tanmid of uh, Rabbi Yohanan, so second, third generation in Moraim. Rava was in was a Rosh yeshiva from Bedita. Now, just so you know, in the days of Rava, he moved the yeshiva to his neighborhood, so it's it's known as Rava Dimchozar. Rava Dimchozar means Rava from the city of Mechoza. And In his days, the yeshiva moved to Mehoza as a special honor to Rava. So it's it was the same yeshiva it was yeshiva from Bedita, but. Um, but as I said, they moved to the city of Mechozah. So just so you don't get confused, thinking, oh, there's Yeshivat Mechozah, which is one thing, and Yeshivat Kumbidita is the other, and Ravah was an Oshe Shiva. Most, most of the faculty moved to Mechozah, not all, but most of them moved to Mechozah, and Ravah was recognized as an Oshe Shiva. So part two of the sugya is, how did the approach the okay, So that's clear? Obviously, it was different. It was a different approach. We'll see. And finally, scrolling. I'm getting an indication that my Internet is not stable. If you can't hear me or see me, please let me know and I will switch to a different um, router, which I have handy this time. So I don't have to, um, you know, interrupt for too long. So, so far, can you all hear me and see me well?
0: So far, yes. It's just a little bit blurry, but it's coming in and out, but it's, it's okay
1: for now. If it's if it switches if the situation deteriorates, let me know. I have this nice little thing, and I could switch to it. Thank okay, you. Thank all right, you. Um, all right. So, part three, part three of the subya is going to be the rejection of Rabba's thesis by the next generation. Allow me to explain. The next generation in the same yeshiva. As I said, Ravah was the Rosh Yeshiva in Fombedita. And there's going to be certain challenges to the way Ravah studied the sugya. So we're going to reject his approach. We're going to reject his approach and we're going to um, finish the sugyah. Um, We're going to finish the sugya with that. Okay? So the sugya is really simple. Uh, and where is that? That's in the last page. If you have the map, part 3 this is big black bold letters part 3 roman numeral 3 rejection of rabba by next generation that's all all right good now let's look at the let's look at each one of these major parts now let's you know go down to greater detail okay so go back to page i guess it would be page uh, 2 really because the first page is just the title page so go to page two. The top of the page says a linguistic problem to be considered in Subiawan. Go to part one, the Abu's approach to the textual problem. Let's look at it. So this part one, Roman numeral one, is divided into three subparts. The first subpart, which is in the green letters and the big letter A, capital A, the interpretation of the Mishnah, according to the Abu, That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at how the Biabhu understands the Mishnah, the meaning of the sentences, or the meaning of the words in the Mishnah. Right? That's that's one question. The second question, which is now um, capital B in the blue letters, the the halachic position of the Mishnah, because there's a there's a language. And number one is how do you understand the language of the Mishnah? That's what that's. Part A. Part B is, okay, so what is the halakha? What is is the halakha according to Rabbi Abu? If you understand the Mishnah in one way, the halakha will be one way. If you understand the Mishnah in another way, the halakha will be another way, right? So that's part B. And finally, going to part C, right? Part C, which is in the uh, the orange uh, letters. A legal evaluation of Rabbi Hanina's position regarding the use of non-expert judges. Let me explain that a little. In in part B, um, we're going to be introducing Rabbi Hanina, and we're going to be introducing a certain concept. And the concept is as follows: Can or may you use non-expert judges in the Jewish judicial system? So, uh, generally, when you have uh, generally, when you have judges, right, right, you assume that the judges are experts, right, and that the judges are, um, have certain qualifications, right, and that they've been, so to speak, vetted. So I want to read with you the Lashon of Harambam, just so you understand this concept a little, what do we mean by, you know, expert judges, you know, and what do we mean by vetting them? So, if you go to the resource sheet, I believe I put it here, but maybe I didn't. Give me, if not, I could always just open up Rambam. Ah, Here it is. It's if you look at the resource sheet, Mishneh Torah Sanhedrin 5 8. Um, hmm. And let's see how this works. Going to number four. I believe it's there. All right. Nope um yeah so what i would do now is i'm going to share the screen with you i'll open up the mishneh torah and then i will share the screen with you it's going to be okay so give me a moment do you, do you want me to share it i've
0: got the source sheet up if you want to uh, it's up to you
1: uh, oh sure okay please do that it's right here
0: there you go
1: that's the one ah very good pedake good so perfect so let me read it so dine kenasot right kevon gezelot Vetashlume Hefel danin otam okay so let me tell you what this is about. Yeah and, and keep it there. Um no need to uh scroll uh, up it's perfect actually. So um in in, in Jewish law there uh, there there's cases where the um defendant um, would have to pay the amount of damages um that he caused to the plaintiff. And that's just what are the actual damages and the actual damages are whatever, you know, whatever they come out to. But then there are cases where there is a penalty provision, where we're saying, okay, the damages were X, but you actually have to pay two X, that's a penalty. That's called nekin asot. And here are examples of cases where there's a penalty, Gezelot, Um Gezelot is some sort of armed robbery, for example, so Vachamishito Yosef Alab, he would have to pay a, a 20% or 25, actually it's a 25% penalty va uh, um, some sort of uh, injury um, that would be for example where you um, a burglary a um, a hidden robbery right and uh, that's so that, so he would have to pay double the amount that he robbed other cases similar cases um, so these are all cases where there are penalty provisions so in the case of penalty provisions, the halacha is very uh, careful. We don't want non-expert judges imposing penalties upon defendants, because if you impose a penalty you know more than the actual damages, you have to be um, particular. You have to be careful. right? And that's why he says, In that case, you need to have three expert judges. So those cases absolutely require expert judges. Um, and how do you vet the judges? What's the vetting process? These judges will receive the semicha from other judges who themselves have the semicha, who are themselves expert judges. Um, and they will determine. So basically, the vetting process is there has to be some sort of evaluation of the student by a, a senior judge who himself has, is an expert judge. And he will determine whether the student is worthy or not worthy of being called a Samuch. And if he's Samuch, he will give him Semicha, akin somehow or analogous. I don't like the word ordination, but I'm throwing the word ordination out there because you know, you're know you all familiar with it. Okay. And this ordination takes place only within the judicial system existing in the land of Israel. So that's Semuchim. The Edith Yisrael. of course, as you know, I don't think anybody's going to be terribly shocked to find out that there is no semicha today. There is no real semicha, not in Eretz Israel, not in uh, America, not in London. Right, right. There's no semuchim in Eretz Israel, and and one of the um, uh, questions that always arises is how is the semicha going to restart? Not the subject for our case. I mean, if there's no semuchim alive, then how can you ever restart the semicha? That's a different uh, question. Well, let's continue now in the um, in the text, but other is a case where one person admits that he owes money to another person. And this is done in the presence of witnesses. Somebody lends money from somebody else. And in this case, you don't need a mumkhe. And the reason you don't need a mumkhe, you don't need an expert judge is because the there is no kenas. So because there is no kenas, we're, we're willing to rely on, you know, business people, people who are familiar with these types of contracts, people who are familiar with these types of business transactions, because there is no kenas, and we will therefore say, well, look, he owes him $100, you know, he didn't pay the $100, let him pay the $100, right? You could have a people who are not, did not receive this special semichat rabanut, Okay, so that's what I wanted. I, will, I, I wanted to um, introduce you to the subject. I'm going to read one more sentence in Haram Outside the land of Israel, as, you, as, as we said before, the Semicha is only inside the land of Israel. So outside the land of Israel, where there is no Semicha, and today also inside the land of Israel, there's is no Semicha. We, we can have the So today when you go to a court for dineh the dine mamonot will be for generally, right? Generally speaking, meaning nobody's going to go to a court today in Israel and say, he robbed me in the middle of the night. Um, I'd, like you, I'd like to get tashlum I'd like to get a double uh, liability paid to me. They won't do it because they don't have the authority to do it. And the reason they don't have the authority to do it is because there is no semicha, Okay. Um, And that's it. So that's all. You can unshare the screen now, um, Sina. So, good. Okay. Uh, Let's continue now. So as I said, subpart C, which is that nice orange letters, right? A legal... So in subpart B, we're going to be dealing with the case of Mumchim, or we're going to be introducing the idea of mumchim, we're going to be introducing the Hanina's position on mumchim, right? And the Hanina's position is that you don't always need to have expert judges, right? That You can have head hediotov. So we're going to evaluate the Hanina's position in this part C, OK? So now you see a very clear path. So again, the first part, the first major part, part one, the biyavuz approach to the textual problem. It has three subparts. You see each one of the subparts clearly, right? so that when we study, when we actually study the yeah, sugya you will know where we're going. Okay, let's now do the same thing for part two. Um, and, and by the way, I want to show you something. Look, for example, part one, subpart C, orange letters, Look at number two. You see in number two where I quote the Gemara, am Do you see that there's a big letter over there? Right, that's not a typo. That big letter with a squiggly line under the big uh, uh, under it, there's a squiggly line under the big letter, there's a bet, you all see it? That's meant to indicate that there is a variation in the girsa. And uh, having looked at the older manuscripts, I detected this variation, and I'm putting in the variation here. That's the squiggly line indicates where I accepted the girsa of, you know, the older manuscripts. And when we study the subya, you will see why these girsa are so important, because oftentimes when you're studying gemara, there is something rather confusing in the flow of the text, not all the time. But sometimes that confusion can be uh, alleviated by looking at the old Risa'ot, and then the confusion um, can dissipate, right? So that's what that is. So if you look now at part two, Ravah's approach to the textual problem, right? If you look at A in the green letters, again, the Academy of Mehozat, you see how there's uh, a whole passage in the Gemara. I should have highlighted that in green. That was a mistake. there's like a line going across that indicates the past I I should have put a green background there also, I didn't but nevertheless that indicates that's the original Gursa, so right now if you open up the Gemariot, you'll see that area where there's a line going through and I'm going to read it for you that line which um, which goes through that text indicates that's actually what you will see in the Gemariot before you. You have the Vilnashas, all of you have the Vilnashas, that's the girsa in the Vilnashas. Below it you see I have the Girsah as it appears in the older manuscripts and you see the squiggly line and it's a different Girsah. Now when we study this you'll see the difference between the Girsah, you'll see that the girsa as it appears in the Vilnashas at least from my perspective, is a, is a bit problematic and raises certain um, um, difficulties and those difficulties are solved in this case by looking at the older good stuff so you'll see that. okay, having said that because I want you to know how to how to read my map. this is a map of the yeah I want you to know how to read it okay so let's look at each each one of the subparts. so part a, sub part A. The Academy of Mechazar rejects the Bi'abhu for textual consideration. So you can imagine that the subject of the Mishnah came up in the Yeshiva. They brought the Abu's interpretation of the Mishnah. And as they're studying the Abu's interpretation of the Mishnah, this is several generations later in a different country, in Babylonia, they raise certain objections. They say, listen, we, we disagree, right? They can do that. Um, so they raise those uh, difficulties. That's in um, that's in part A. Part B, in the blue letters, the interpretation of the Mishnah according to Rabbah. So, what is the alternative explanation of the Mishnah that will be in part B? How does Rabbah understand the Mishnah? And finally, part C. Um, what compelled Shemuel to interpret the Mishnah in this manner? Um, as you will see, and I, I'm, maybe I could have been a little more clear here, it should have been what compelled Ravah to interpret the Mishnah in this manner. So forgive that, you know, um, confusion. Uh, but part C is going to tell us why Ravah interprets the Mishnah as he interprets it. Okay, And that's it. That's the end of, um, that's the end of part two. Let's go now to part three. All right. Part three actually takes place in the same yeshiva. We said part two took place in yeshiva, which was physically located in Nechelzat at that time. And part C takes place in yeshiva Fombedita. Okay. So, you know, and this is by the way, this is the beauty of Talmud Torah. And, and I want to, it would be okay if I make a slight digression here. Okay. You know, and, and this happens all the time. You know, anytime, you know, halachic issue comes up, oh, but this rabbi said that, you know. And I hear other rabbis when they give classes, this rabbi said that. Um, you know, one of the issues that comes up, I'm just going to, you know, throw it out there. Some of you may have seen my class on using an electric um, electric lamp for Nero Chabat, the permissibility or more... Invalidity of using uh, an electric lamp for Chabad. So listen to the classes. This rabbi said that. That rabbi said that. But this rabbi said that. And this rabbi said that. You know, the only thing missing from these discussions is: can somebody actually look at the law and look at the gemara and tell me what does the gemara say? Give me actual legal analysis. It's it's missing, and I and I hear that all the time. I mean, not not well, no. There, there there's some there's some who give very good classes. But there's a lot of that going around where they start quoting rabbis, and this rabbi said, and that rabbi said, and and can you explain the law? Can you analyze? What's a ner? What's a nail Shabbat? You know, something, give me some sort of, you know, understanding. And what we see in the Gemara, you know, if the Gemara was this rabbi said that, you wouldn't have a Gemara, right? The whole thing would be, you know, it would be like, you know, the whole Gemara would be like five pages, this rabbi said that. And that's, you know, if that's end of the discussion. I guess that's end of the discussion. But here you see that in Yeshivat itself, Rava was one of the greatest, most revered, most respected Rashe Yeshiva, and they're not embarrassed to challenge him and to ask questions against him, as Rava was not embarrassed to challenge the great student of Rabbi Yochanan, he's challenger Rabbi Avu. This is the nature of Torah study, right? So when I try to study Halacha, you know, I could be wrong, but at least analyze the subject. You understand? Meaning, analyze the subject. And if you want to quote rabbis, of course, you can quote rabbis, that's great. You should quote rabbis. You should read what they said. You should understand what they said. But it doesn't stop there. Right? So the great lesson of the Gemara is keep studying and use your mind to try to understand, to try to understand clearly what the legal issues are, right? All right, that that's important that's really uh, i think there was um, um, a student of my father his name is rabbi alan uter who by the way is great he writes fantasticals. I, I i recommend him very uh, can you still hear me i'm getting a message that my internet connection is unstable yeah it was a little cut out a little bit but uh that. I... okay um, so there Rabbi Alan Uter, a, a really fantastic writer who wrote many, many articles on many subjects, his son, um, I think his son's name is Josh. He... Oh, tree.
0: God... It's, it's cut out again, Rob. You may want to oh, change tree. it. I will do that. Give me a moment, please.
1: Okay, am I back? For now. For now, I think, I think this should be better. I think this should be better. Um, and uh, hopefully thank there'll you. be no issues. Right, and you can hear me well now? No. Uh... So, far, yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Um, Godolatry. <laughs> Godolatry, I think, was, a, was, a, was coined by Josh Uter. Um, and the idea of Godolatry is, you know, there's a Godol, the Godol says something, and that's it. The only problem is you always have different gadols and different gadols say different things. So you know, it's, not, it's nothing against um, revering and respecting Chachamim. Of course not. We respect and revere all Chachamim, but that's not the way of Pesach Halacha, right? The way of Pesach Halacha is to understand the issues and to analyze the issues. But okay, be that as it may, that's a great lesson from the Gemara. So let's look at part three. Rejection of Rabbah by the next generation. All right. This part three is um, going to, it starts with a statement by Rav Acha Bereder who introduces something, let's call it revolutionary, um, dramatic, and that is the permissibility of adjudication by a single judge or by an individual judge, in contrast to uh, Rav Acha. Right. Um, part B will look at the requirement of three judges. Where does that requirement come from? And then part C will offer three challenges to Ahaz's uh, thesis. So that's it. That's, that's the whole sugyah right there. The whole sugya. you just have the summary. It's all been mapped out to you. We can begin studying the sugya now. But this is the surat Um, You should all have a very clear picture and just seeing it on the actual colorful map, which I may um will hopefully help help you follow the class that I'm now about to give in the few minutes that we have left. Okay, any questions till now before we go to part two of the uh, the um class? Okay, good. So here's what I want to do in part two. In part two, I wanna take you through the actual language of the Gemara. Okay, so we're going to start with um, the beginning, the title is. Uh, just one second, please. Let me just open up my notes, right? OK, good. So let's now start with the actual text of the Gemara. I'm going to be reading the text as it appears on the map, because when it's on the map, it's just so much easier to follow. But you know, if you have a proclivity towards books, as by the way, I do, I was like using books. Just in this case, I'm going to be using the map because it's here and it's easy to follow. If you wish to open the book, open the book. If you want to follow the map, follow the map. The words are all here. Okay, let's start. So Gemara, um, and I'm going to read it with the uh, melody, the traditional melody of reading Gemara. Um, uh, the question is clear. Do you mean to say, that Gezelot Bahavalot are not included in the category of dinema monot That was the question. And now we're going to have the the, uh, the first two parts of the Gemara will deal with that specific question. Here is the B'abhu. Um, now look at part one the Ribiyavu's approach to the textual problem, and you'll see that part A, the interpretation of the Mishnah according to the Biahu itself has three subparts, right? Because you didn't have that in the other, um, if you go down to part two, uh, part two of this, we got just has A, B, C. A wasn't further divided into three subparts, right? Just, I want to make you aware of that. Um, but here, if you look at part one, you look at A, A is a part is divided into three subparts. Look at B, B is divided into three subparts, and you look at C. C is divided into three subparts. So it's really the Chachamim. It's hard to say. I know people like to say that everything is a coincidence. The theory of evolution and all that. I got it. Um, this is a text. Um, I, you know, it, it's very uh, compelling. The idea that the Chachamim did this intentionally is is, is very compelling because when you see the subya after subya after subya, you know the way it's structured, it just it's like okay, so. They, they knew what they were doing, in the Chachamim Sefaradim, in the Andalusian tradition, when they studied the Sugiot, according to the Suratah Matita, they apparently had a, uh, a very solid tradition as to how to study Gemara. So you see it here before you. Okay, so let's go now. Rabbi Avhu's approach to the textual problem. The first is subpart A, the interpretation of the Mishnah according to the Avhu, and it's as follows. Number one, the actual interpretation of the Mishnah Here it is. I'm reading it to you. Amar B'avu Ma hen katane Ma hen dinei mamonot gezelot vahavalot aval hodahot vahalvaot la Okay. The bi'avu says to properly interpret um, uh, the Mishnah you have to read the second clause, Gezelot Bahavalot, as that is. So the reading of the Mishnah is Dinema Monot Bishlosha. And when I say Dinema Monot, mahem, what is Dinema Monot? Gezelot Bahavalot. So Gezelot Bahavalot comes to interpret, but more importantly, limit Dinema Monot. When I said Dinema Monot, I didn't mean all Dinema Monot. What did I mean by Dinema Monot? Gezelot Okay, so again, Amar b'yavu ma'en katane, ma'en dinim hamonot. Gezelot v'chavalot. By the word dinim hamonot, v'beinu meant specific type of dinim Gezelot v'chavalot. Av'al hodaot behalvaot la. But as far as hodaot, which we explain, a person admits that he owes money to another person, as far as halva'ot, a person lent borrowed money from somebody else, this is not included in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is not dealing with that. Dinema monot bishloshna does not include halva'ot although halva'ot is part of dinema monot, but this is not what's meant by the Mishnah. Why? We'll see. But this is the interpretation of the Mishnah. Now, subpart two is going to explain the reasoning of Rabbi Abu. it's going to ex- explicate Rabbi Abu's interpretation. And here it is. And, and, and we needed to formulate the Mishnah. Sericha means it was a necessity. What was a necessity? The formulation of the Mishnah in this way, namely, that formulation was a necessity. Why? If the Mishnah would have only said the words dine mamonot, amina, I would have, of course, understood the words dine mamonot bishlosha to include all dinemamonot, and therefore I would understand the Mishnah to include But as you remember, it doesn't include according to the uh, Tana. Gezalot v'chavalot, and that's why it ends, after it says Dinei Malot b'shelosha, it immediately clarifies. By this I mean, <coughs> I'm sorry, Gezalot <coughs> v'chavalot. Excuse me. Continuing. Be'itana gezalot v'chavalot. If the Mishnah would have, instead of saying Dine Mamonot Bishloshah, Gezelot Vahavalot Bishloshah, the Mishnah could have said Gizelot Vahavalot Bishlosha. why not? And then I would know it's Gezelot Havalot Bishloshah and not Chodot Vahalvaot. So, V'itana Gizelot Vahavalot Bila Katanei Dinei Mamonot. If it would have just said Gizelot uh, that would have led to a potential misinterpretation. Hava Amina, I would have understood the Mishnah, or I would have believed that the Mishnah means... I would have understood that gezelot bahavalot comes to illustrate a type of dinema mono, right? If it would have just said I would have said, yeah, okay, gezelot bahavalot and other things like it would have been etc. Bishlosha in implied term, right? Remember last week we spoke about it in implied terms? I would have understood gezelot etc. Bishlosha. That's the way I would have understood it. And again. What would be the problem that I would think that the Mishnah includes hodaot v'halvaot? And that's a mistake. It doesn't include (laughs) hodaot v'halvaot. All right. And the reason, uh, according to this particular um, uh, line of thinking, that um, the Mishnah, when it says Gezelot b'chavalot, it means Gezelot v'chavalot, et right? What, so why, why would the Mishnah choose Gezelot b'chavalot as the example of dinema monot why, why do that? I mean, why, wait, the, according to that, the Mishnah could have said Hodot et cetera, Why did it choose Gezelot b'chavalot according to that line of reasoning? And the answer is because the Mishnah would have been following the Lashon of the Chumash. Um, uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. I'll explain that in a moment. But again, again, if the Mishnah would have said I would think that's a general category that includes if the Mishnah would have said gezelot b'chavalot b'shaloshah, I would have thought gezelot b'chavalot means gezelot b'chavalot, etc. And the reason the Mishnah chose gezelot b'chavalot as an illustration of dinem monot right? It's because the Torah uses gezelot b'chavalot, or it's following it's following the um, the lashon Torah, It's following the um, um, the fact that the Torah itself illustrates the law of three judges in the case of Gezelot, so it's following the Torah, and that's why it chooses Gezelot v'chavalot and not Bahal Ba'ot. All right. Again, 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 mishum. Okay. So therefore, what's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is, that is, Gezelot v'chavalot. It couldn't have just said, it couldn't have just said, Gezerot it had to say both. And only by saying both, it's pointing us to a certain direction. Okay? So that's the, that's the, um, that's the textual analysis of the first few words of the Mishnah as Rabbi uh, Avhu analyzes it. There's one last thing that we kind of have to tie up, and that's going to be subpart three. We said, we said that um, in choosing Gezelot, it was choosing um, as the model what the Torah uses as a model to teach us. So, where is it that the Torah teaches as the law of Shelot Shadayanim with respect to Gezelot? So, right now in subpart three, it gives us where. Now, let me explain to you this is a summary of a mechilta. There's a mechilta, and I think it's in the resource sheet. If you open it up now, just go to the resource sheet for a moment. I think I'll have it somewhere as well. Okay, at least I think I have it. Oh, there you go. Okay, very right, good. So there's a mechilta. This is now, just so you understand, the uh, the book of Shemot has two mechilta. The book of Shemot has mechilta, derbi and it has mechilta on shema'on bari This is mechilta derbi So if you can please uh, scroll, yeah, sc- keep scrolling down. So here you have the mechilta, and in the mechilta, you have this terasha. This terasha is brought fully in the mechilta, meaning how do we learn the laws of three dayanim? So the mechilta brings certain pesukim that have to do with robbery, And in those pesukim, the word Elohim, which means judges, appears three times. And the mechitza teaches us: Why does the word, why do the words, or why does the word Elohim appear three times? To teach us that you need a minimum of three judges in the case of gezelot. All right, is that clear? Right. So that's a mechitza now. Why am I not reading the mechilta with you right now? I just made you aware of it. Why didn't I read it with you? Because um, further down, they're going to go through the mechilta, I think in suya number three, right? In Suya number three, they're actually going to go through this mechilta. I don't don't find it necessary to take you through the mechilta. I do find it necessary to explain to you what's happening. So where, with respect to which monetary issue do we learn the law of shaloshadayanim in the fumash, and the answer is with respect to gezelot, right? So now you see the now you can unshare the screen. So now you understand the uh, the reasoning of the of explication of the explication of Rabbi, uh, of Rabbi in part sub part two. Since we learned the law of three Dayanim in the context of gezelot, that's why the Mishnah would have brought gezelot pachavat pishlosa. Right. And I would have learned, oh, but it means etc. It's just giving us it's giving us a case that appears in the Torah, but it appears for all um but, but this law of dayanin, this law of three judges, it applies to all um, um, cases of monetary issues, right? That that that's that's the that's why. So the ikal shaloshadihtivi, big zelok ketivi. Now um, and now look at part three. So part three is gonna it's as I said, it's an allusion to this. Particular mechilta, um, right? So here we go. I'm reading to you part three now. And 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 it's just it's again it's paraphrasing the mechilta. The mechilta continues, right? So it's a little confusing. You're saying you're looking at this. You say, "Well, I only say the word Elohim once." Uh, people, uh, in order to uh, perhaps I should have said this. Um, as part of the admission to the yeshiva, um, the people, the, the Talmidim had to be experts and had to be fluent in the Tosefta, in the Sifra, in the Sifre, in the Mechilta. So it wasn't necessary in the context of this Uyad to bring the entire Mechilta because people were familiar with the Mechilta. So it's just kind of bringing you the, the first sentence of the Mechilta. So gezeelot tifti, v'nekra balavarki habalot, what about Havalot? Um, let me explain this to you. If you look at the Pesukim over there in that same place, it deals with the laws of Havalot, with the laws of injury, right? Um, and the lesson here is if Gezelot uh, requires three Dayanim, right? And Gezelot is, you know, relatively simple um, matter, a person robbed, he was caught, he has to return what he robbed, the amount, the value, the value of what he robbed, and he has to be penalized, according to depending on the particular situation, right? Of course, in the case of, for example, Havalot, a fire spread, there's a lot of questions, you know, was it, was it it was it windy, was it foreseeable, was it reasonable, right? There's all these questions, so... If in the case of Gezelot, the Torah says you have the word Elohim three times in there, but we learn you need to have three judges, and, and it brings right there the laws of Havalot. Of course, the law of three judges applies as well for Havalot. I think you all understand, and I said this last week, that when I say of course, right, Kalvahomer, for fortiori. um... There's a foregone conclusion, right? There's a foregone conclusion. There's an understanding of the law, right? Meaning, nobody actually sits down at these pesukim and, wait, how many judges do we have to use uh, in a case of financial matters? Well, wait, oh, wow, let's count the number of times that the word Elohim appears. Oh, and if it appears here, let's, you know, of course it should apply to Havalot. Later on, the Pasuk says, the laws of Halvaot, right? Um, so the point is, it's, it's, um, it's rhetoric. I take it seriously. I take it very seriously. And by the way, Bam says in the Monei Nebuchim a lot of this rhetoric contains within it many of the secrets, many of the sodot of the Torah. So I don't mean to belittle it, chas I'm not belittling the rhetoric. I'm just pointing out what came first, the chicken or the egg. What came first? The law of shaloshadayanim or the derivation from the pesuchim? And the answer is the law of shaloshadayanim came first. And the derivation is a rhetorical device used to tie the pre-existing law that we received by tradition to the pesukim, very important. I think I just saw people many visits to psychologists and, and and many other such issues that can you know apply if you look at it the other way around. So I'm just trying to help everybody here and and be kind and gentle. Um, so that's important. That's important um, to know that, right? Um, so I will <laughs> I will go on now to the next part of the sugya, and therefore and, and finally. Rabbi Yahu's conclusion, which is a repetition of one, that's why I call it number one, because it just repeats the same thing. That's why Tana, mahen dinemamonot. And this is why the Mishnah, or Rabbi Noah Kadosh, when he formulated the Mishnah, he says, so, dinemamonot, bishlosha, dine What do I mean when I say dinemamonot? Do I mean all dinemamonot? No. Gezelot, vahabalot. I mean, gezelot, aval hodaot bahavalot. La, but this comes to exclude That's it. That's the first subpart of part one. Again, we're studying now the Biabhu's approach to the Mishnah. We just looked at the textual issue from the textual perspective. Now we're going to look at the Biabhu from a halachic perspective. Okay, let's do it. We have a few minutes. It's remarkable. It's an espresso. It's a double espresso. Should have been finished forty-five minutes ago. So I can only conclude that I'm doing something right because you all are familiar with the Kad Hashemin of Elisha Hanavi and the poor lady who had to redeem her children from slavery, and she just kept pouring and pouring and pouring, and the miracle happened, and it didn't. The, the oil never ended. So I'm I'm making a similar analogy with my espresso. May, maybe I'm exaggerating. I don't know. Uh, nevertheless, let's get to uh, part B. Part B, the halachic position of the Mishnah according to the Viahu. So part B starts with the following word. The word is ulmai. Ulmai um, literally means for what reason. Meaning, for what reason would the Mishnah include gezelot v'chavalot in Dinema Monot and say dine meaning you need three judges in the case of gezelot v'chavalot. But you don't require three judges in the case of Hodat Vahavot. Apparently, I mean, if you're telling me that Hodaot Vahavot is excluded from that from the Mishnah, that well, then you're telling me that it doesn't require three judges. So, is that, is that what you're saying? So, Ilema, and that's exactly the first part. Ilema de la ba'Einan Shelosha beha Amar Bi'avu Shneim Dinema De Kol En Din. Okay, perhaps Ilema, when, when the B'yavu excluded Hodaot v'halvaot from the purview of Dinema Monot, did he mean to say that Hodaot v'halvaot do not require three judges? That, that would be a rather unusual conclusion. And the reason that that would be a rather unusual conclusion is because here the Gemara says, the B'yavu himself says, Two people, judges, sitting and adjudicating a financial matter. This is an improper, there wasn't a proper quorum. Um, you, you need three judges, two judges. It's an invalid ruling. So obviously you cannot say that Rabbi Yahu is trying to teach us that al do not require three judges. Of course they require three judges. He himself says so. Ella, rather, So apparently the intention of the Biyabu was to say that in the case of Hodaot you don't need to have expert judges. Remember we studied Harambam? Right? You need three judges. You just don't need expert judges. So that's a halachic qu- uh, consequence. So, again, you see, you have first the textual interpretation of the Mishnah. That's one subject. And now the second subject. What's the halachic consequence? And the halachic consequence is apparently, according to the Biavu, in the case of Hadarot, you do not require um, uh, expert judges. Right? Okay. We're going to challenge this. Subpart two, exegetical challenge to, and then defense of one above. So we're going to challenge it. My um, kasava. What is the? Again, this is rhetoric. How does the Abhu read the perashiyot in the Torah? The relevant perashiyot in the Torah. I'm sorry I'm going to give you just just so we can finish it up because I, I see that we have four minutes and we will we will continue next week from this point in the Sugya but how does it be able read the relevant passages? You remember that we showed you the, the passage in Perashat Mishpatim from where we learned the law of Sheloshah uh, Dayanim, right? Now, in that passage, a little um, uh, further down, you have the law of, um, uh, of um, Halvaot, right? And the question is, we said, for example, that the law of Sheloshah Dayanim applies to Havalot, right? Which is there in the Perashah. And now, if you go a little further down, you have the laws of halvaot. So how exactly are you reading this um, passage in the Torah? kasava? I, used, I, I the, Apparently, we would think that the pirashot is somehow connected. Eiru, there's a connection. They're mixed in. But literally means, Eiru uh, Pirasha means that things from one perashah or the laws learned in one perashah impact upon the second perasha, and vice versa, potentially, right? So if you're going to tell me that the laws in Gezelot, um, namely, apply to the laws of Halvaot, right? Because right? you only would learn that if you say that the perashot are connected. Then in that case, you can't pick and choose. Well, it also says you have to have Mumchim in the case of Gezelot. So, you can't say, oh, you have to have Shaloshadayanim because of Arup Perashiot, but you don't need Mumtaim. Well, if there's Arup Perashiot, then you need to take, you know. Um, a person sometimes wants to marry a lady or not marry a lady. She's, um, she's, uh, she's tremendous. Maybe she's not good looking enough for the person. You know, I mean, you know, you, 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 you have to take the lady as she is, right? You, you, you can't, uh, right? So Eruv Perashiot is exactly that. This is a perashah. The perashah says you need three dayanim. The first, the perashah of Gizalot says you need three dayanim. The perashah of Gizalot says you need mompayim. If you're going to say that the laws of sheloshah Dayanim apply to the law of um, Albaot, well, then also the laws of Mumchim apply to the laws of Alvaot, right? So, again, if you say that the Pirashiot are connected, then the same way you learn the laws of three Dayanim from Gezelot, you learn it to Alvaot, you would also learn the, the law of Mumchim from Gezelot to Alvaot. And on the other hand, you say, no, 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 no the two perashiot are not connected. And the reason you want to say the two perashiot are not connected is because you don't want to have the laws of mumchim that you have in Gezelot apply to the laws of Halva'ot, right? And in that case, well, how do you learn the laws of three Dayanim in the case of Halva'ot? So, so the answer is, Actually, there is a Pirashiyot. Actually, there is a Actually. You learn the laws of three Dayanim in the case of Halvaot. You learn it from its connection to the perasha of Gezelot. And also the law of Mumchim from Gezelot applies to Halvaot. So uvdinhu, according to the standard norms of uh, the word din, din means judicial analysis of a verse, uvdinhu, The proper judicial analysis of these verses would indeed require that the law of Mumchim, which appears in the case of Gezelot, applies to the laws of Halvaot. Yes. So then why don't we have Mumchim? That's a separate subject. That's number three. That's what we're going to see. I'm reading it to you now. Number three, Mishum de there was a Tanah called Rabbi and this Tanah rejected the use of expert judges in certain cases. And it's because of his rejection of the use of expert judges that actually we don't follow what we would normally conclude. Normally, the conclusion should have been and maybe until the days of Rabbi the conclusion was that you need three Dianim in the case of Alvaot, and you need Mumchim. Later on comes Rabbi Hanina, and rejects the idea of Mumchim. We'll have to explain this later, and we'll see how this rejection affected Barbenu HaKadosh when he um, uh, edited the Mishnah. That's next week. For now, it's, it's past the time, but I do want to give you the opportunity to ask questions. I have not been looking at the chat. I don't know if anybody had a question that they posted for me on the chat, but if it is, you can raise your hand and just, you know.
0: Thank you, Acha. Um, let's see if there are any questions in the chat here, or would anyone like to mute and uh, unmute and ask a question? Nope, no questions I guess not.
1: Pretty clear. <laughs> okay okay excellent so i'm looking forward to seeing you all next week please yes. you have the map now review it carefully um and uh hopefully we will be able to uh, maybe even finish the sugya next week perhaps at least you know this this analysis that we've been doing
0: yes please fantastic i was saying it feels like we have a cheat code with your sugya map it's uh it's fantastic uh really really helpful and uh kind of gives a macro and micro view uh, of the Sukhya. So uh, looking forward to the whole sefer, please God. No rush. All right. All right. Thank Great. You. All <laughs> Take us. care. Bye. Good night. Thanks, everybody.